Coming right up on the Van Maren Show, New York Times bestselling author and radio host Eric Metaxas shares with us what he thinks is facing America right now, why he believes Black Lives Matter and Antifa to be Marxist threats to the existence of the United States, and what he thinks is going to happen come November. That's coming right up. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm extraordinarily privileged to talk to one of my favorite authors and historians. I've been reading his work for years, so I was delighted to be able to talk to him. Uh, My favorite book that he's written is called Amazing Grace. It's the history of William Wilberforce's campaign to end the slave trade in Great Britain. He's also written the very famous biography of Bonhoeffer. Uh, It's been read by presidents of the United States, including including George Bush. He has a book called If You Can Keep It, which we discuss in this interview. I would encourage you all to go out and purchase that. It's a fascinating read. He's a historian. He's a commentator with his own radio show, The Eric Metaxas Show. I've also listened to many of the interviews, which you can find on YouTube. And he was... uh, Kind enough to join us to discuss what he thinks the future of America looks like, informed by the history of the United States. We are currently in what he believes to be America's third great existential crisis, and he joins me to discuss why that is and what we can do about it. First question, so tell our listeners and our viewers a bit about what's going on in the United States right now, especially considering the fact that we recently discovered they're burning Bibles in Portland. Burning Bibles? Are you kidding? I'm, I'm joking. Of course I know they're burning Bibles. I've been talking about it. And I'll tell you something. There are a number of things to say, Jonathan, on this issue. Number one, in a way, I'm very glad they're burning Bibles because we can see very clearly what the agenda is behind the BLM slash Antifa movement. These people are cultural Marxists. Cultural Marxists are atheists. Uh, Marxist, Marxism is atheistic. Now, it's not so much that they don't believe in God, it's what follows from that. In other words, if you don't believe in God, you don't believe the human being is made in the image of God. You right. believe in state. And so you think that crushing human beings for what you call the greater good is perfectly fine. You saw that in the Soviet Union. Uh, we've seen that throughout the history uh, of atheist Marxism. So it's interesting to me that they would come out of the closet, so to speak, and burn not just American flags, which is very similar ultimately, because that's what the flag stands for as well, which is, I would say, old style classical liberalism, uh, that we are a free people and we can debate. All of that suddenly is under attack. And we should be glad, I think, that uh, we are clear on what we're dealing with. Uh, Don't talk about Joe Biden anymore. When I talk about Joe Biden, I always put him in quotes. He's a placeholder. He is, uh, he's a host for a parasitic organization that is using him uh, to destroy the West and to destroy the values of the West. And of course, the values of the West are mostly values that are biblical because the Bible gave us the West. So, you know, forget the sanctity of the unborn, the sanctity of any human being uh, suddenly goes out the window. We've seen it the way the unborn have been treated by the left, but, but now we're going to see 
the full fruit of a worldview that that kicks God out and says we will be God, or perhaps uh, we will say uh, whoever has the most power will be God, and I want to be God, so I'm going to try to get power. And if I have to do ugly things, there's no rule. There's no law that says that's bad. There's no longer good or evil we can do as we like. That's the brave new world that we will enter if we don't understand what we're facing and if we don't fight it with everything we have, including, obviously, prayer. So maybe you can help us understand why they're coming out into the open like this, because as recently as last week, you had uh, Joe Biden's campaign reaffirming his Catholic credentials. You had the Lincoln Project saying he attends regular church services. So they're still doing this old Democratic Cuomo Kennedy thing of trying to claim you can have it both ways. And then you have the protesters who are saying, you know, uh, no, to hell with all of that. We're burning Bibles on the streets. And there seems to be a real disparity between the, the sort of typical Democratic line where they're trying not to alienate Christians and pro-lifers and then these, these folks on the street who we all know who they're going to vote for, but they're just coming right out of the closet with it. Well, they're on the same team. And so let me simply say one of these things is, is a diversion tactic. I mean, look, there are centrist Democrats that are gullible enough to actually somehow think that it's possible uh, to go back to whatever the Democratic Party was. That, that ship sailed a thousand years ago. They are, in, they are in a brave new world. People like Pelosi uh, and others would like to think that they can have some influence. But that's like, you know, uh, von Poppen or others in Germany in the 30s who thought that they could control Hitler. He will control you. Make no mistake. Uh, the ruthless um, uh, atheist uh, cultural Marxists and national socialists, as they were dubbed uh, in Germany, uh, whether it's Soviet Union style Bolshevism or whether it's Nazi style uh, totalitarianism, uh, it, it really is the same thing. They ultimately totally disagree with the Bible, with the views of the Bible, and they are set on wiping it out. But again, you know, you put yourself in the shoes of a, of a Pelosi or somebody in, in that world, they don't know what to do. They're hanging on for dear life. It's like hanging on to the to a truck, you know, by the tailpipe and you go 90 miles down the road. You don't really have a plan. There is no plan. Eventually, uh, you're going to get left behind. Uh, but the, the fact is that we have to make it clear that that's the case. In other words, there are, there are a lot of people, good people that that think, well, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think Biden, let me tell you something. There is no Joe Biden. Uh, as I said, uh, he is, he's a husk. I refer to him as Joe Biden in quotes because there's no Joe Biden. He is simply a placeholder. And if you, if you have any dream that he would be able uh, to govern or that he would be able to keep the radical forces from governing, you don't. You, you asked me, by the way, why now? What is going on? Yeah. Um, my, my book, If You Can Keep It, I wrote a book called If You Can Keep It, The Forgotten Promise of American Liberty. And it, it's because I was ignorant. I realized that I didn't really understand the link between faith and freedom, the link between the Bible uh, and virtue and the freedoms that come out of it that gave us the United States of America and a mostly free West. When I finally got that, I understood what Benjamin Franklin meant when he was leaving the, Con the Constitutional Convention in 1787, and a woman asked him, Dr. Franklin, what have you given us? What is this Constitution? Have you given us a monarchy or a republic? No one had ever governed themselves in the history of the world. We forget. No one in the history of the world 
had ever really governed themselves. So it was quite possible that in the Constitutional Convention, they couldn't figure it out. They couldn't get a, uh, an agreement, uh, any kind of compromise, and that they would have said, well, we'll have some kind of a soft monarchy. It'll be better than the tyrannous King George III, you know. But the fact is, no one knew whether it was possible to have real liberty on the American model that we take for granted today. And so Franklin says, a republic, madam, he, he tells her, we've given you a republic if you can keep it. In other words, if you, the people, will continue to be virtuous, uh, if you will bolster robust expressions of faith, you don't need to be a Christian yourself, but you need to understand that, that the virtue uh, and, and the faith that have made all of this possible will continue to keep it possible. And if it goes away, people cease to govern themselves. If you don't answer to a higher authority, which is to say God or whoever your higher authority is, right, then why would you be virtuous? You wouldn't. Right. You'd be absolutely self-centered. Franklin knew that if the people in a free society who were not being forced to go to church, they were not being forced to believe anything, but if they did not have robust expressions of faith, uh, if the government tried to mess with that, the whole thing goes kablooey. And I basically think it went really well for a long time. And in my lifetime, the last 50 years or so, we've forgotten these things. We've ceased to teach these things. And the reason I wrote, if you can keep it, was I said, we are on the brink now of losing everything. If an entire culture forgets these things, it is possible for uh, evil actors like Antifa and BLM, who are nothing but Marxists, cultural Marxists who want mm -hmm. to destroy the, the West and America and any biblical value and certainly any uh, Christian faith. They're just like the Chinese Communist Party, except right. they're here. And we are now at a place where it's possible for them to come out of the closet and say, let's burn it all down. It's a racist country because we don't know our actual history and we don't know how America really has worked. How have we been so free? How have we promoted human flourishing? How have we elevated human dignity? That's what the Bible has done. That's what America has done with the values that we got from the Bible. But if you don't know that, you are a sitting duck for people to come in and to, you know, sing, sing a song that sounds really nice. And you just sort of follow the song. And next thing you know, you, you know, you're in the gulag because you dared say something that uh, Premier Stalin didn't like. I mean, the, the, yeah. we need to know this history. So just for uh, to make a distinction for our listeners, and a lot of people I know have listened to, to Jordan Peterson, who I've, I've interviewed before, so they've heard him use this phrase, cultural Marxist, a lot. Now, how do you distinguish between just a Marxist, which I assume most people would understand, and a cultural Marxist? Would it just be that a cultural Marxist, it explains the way he sees the world, the oppressed versus the oppressor, that sort of binary? Or are you referring to something even deeper? Well, it, it is certainly that, and it, it's deeper and it's connected. I mean, if you think about it... Um, I would say that the God of the Bible wants to bless everyone. So this idea of a zero-sum game, that if you get something, uh, I should be envious, and I can deify envy, and I can want to grab what you have. I, I think those of us in America say, well, wait a second. Everyone can have more. Everyone can be blessed. It is not a zero-sum game. But mm -hmm. let's say you don't believe that. Let's say you say, no, that's a lie. Uh, that's a capitalist lie. There's only so much to go around, and we think it should be given to the workers. So you set the workers against um, whoever it is, you know, the, the business leaders, and you create envy and anger and a sense of self 
uh, righteousness against power. In other words, you use those emotions, uh, and basically that's what cultural Marxism does, except it divides it along different lines. It says, well, okay, we're not just going to talk about economic uh, um, depression. We're not going to talk about people who are repressed or depressed economically. We're going to talk uh, about anyone uh, who feels like a victim in any way. And all of us victims will work together, even though we may hate each other and probably do, okay? Uh, right. Radical uh, Muslims who, who want to destroy the West, uh, they despise homosexuals. They despise any LGBTQ agenda. They despise any feminist agenda. But if they can get something by going along with those other people, they will go along. They have a common enemy. And so what you now have is uh, anybody who can claim to be a victim is part of that class. And cultural Marxism says, we're fighting for you. You need to fight for each other. We're all going to arrive at some kind of utopia. Um, there's no doubt that that's nonsense. It, it's, it's like, you know, snake oil. It, it is never going to happen. It has never happened in history. So it's a lie, but it's an intoxicating lie to those who don't understand what is happening. Uh, because, the, you know, every lie has plenty bits of truth mixed in with it. There's no such thing as a pure lie. So, you know, the idea that, you know, there are some rich people that, uh, you know, they, they shouldn't have that. And it would be better if I had some of that, whatever. We, we all have feelings like that. The question right. is, what do we do together? What is the right answer? What is God's answer? Those aren't the questions that the cultural Marxists ask. And you also have to make clear that Marxists not only thrive by dividing and setting one group against another, this constant dialectic, right? The other thing they do is they say God is out. When you wipe out God, you take away uh, anything that can be appealed to as a higher authority, right? So the state has all the authority, and, and anyone, any Christian in China is any Falun Gong, any Buddhist, uh, any Uyghur Muslim, anyone who appeals to a higher authority, higher than the state, is a threat to the total authority of the state. And that's part of what atheist Marxism is as well. So we say it's cultural Marxism because these <laughs> folks aren't looking, you know, to turn us into a, a part of the, uh, the former Soviet Union. It's right. something more, in some ways, it's even more insidious than that. One of the things I've found particularly challenging about even engaging in, in conversations like this is the fact that when people do not know their history, you're speaking different languages to the point where it's difficult to communicate. So for one example, during all this sort of iconoclastic statue smashing, you had statues of abolitionists coming down. You had, uh, I think, I think uh, Lincoln, the abolitionist memorial in Boston there is in a box somewhere. And one of the difficult things is when they talk about slavery as the original sin of the founding, which... I, I would absolutely agree with what they're missing is, of course, the fact that 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 original sin was purged away by the blood of more than 600,000 Union soldiers and the fact that it was understood that way at the time that Lincoln grappled with this for years. We have his handwritten notes where he grapples with why, if we're trying to fight a war where we've now announced we're ending slavery as God letting this drag on and God allowing so many soldiers to die. And then he he, he does his his second inaugural address, the greatest political sermon ever 
preached, which should be read by everybody at least once a month, where he essentially says, you know, paraphrasing that if, if God will demand a, a drop of blood drawn by the sword for every drop of blood drawn by the lash, we must say the judgments of the Lord are good and righteous altogether. Uh, that actually wasn't a, wasn't a paraphrase, but this is this is precisely what he, the understanding he came to, which is that this was a, was a wickedness that God is judging us for our wickedness, and that we will be judged as long as God sees fit, and then we'll come out the other end. And without being able to understand theology, without understanding the Bible, if you don't know the Bible, you can't even understand most of that speech. If you don't believe in God's existence, the speech is nonsense. So we do have a framework to explain the the original sin of the founding and how America moved past. But how do we communicate that to people who don't who don't understand any of the things that we've just discussed? I know you're not trying to tee me up to plug my book, but that's my it's the perfect, the literally the reason I wrote my book, if you can keep it, is for precisely what you just said. For people on the left and for people on the right and for people in the middle, what are we missing? How can we communicate to each other the basics? Not many people would think of Lincoln as a monster or a racist. I talk right. a lot about Lincoln and about that. Um, Lincoln understood what we're talking about better than I think anyone in history, and I write a, a, a chapter about him and his understanding of this, I, I wrote it in a way to make it very accessible to young people and mm -hmm. to people that are just, they're just not sure what they think, but I, I, I'm very happy to say that it's not the kind of a book that I gave to my liberal friends and they said, oh, this is kind of conservative, whatever. It's not conservative. It's American. Yeah. Once everyone in America understood these things. Where we are now is in a day where because so many don't understand these things, we're at the risk of losing everything. Every person will be canceled. You will have a small coterie of people deciding what you can say and what you can't say and who can go to church and who can gather and so on and so forth. It's, it's all becoming rather clear. And as I say, it's, it's good. It's a clarifying moment where we understand, holy cow, what's going on, the hour's late, we need to get busy. And so I, I would, would claim that if you read the reasonably short book that I wrote, it kind of tells you all the basics, but in a way that is not going to alienate somebody that disagrees with us theologically or politically. This is, these are the basics. And I, I feel that the first thing you have to do is educate people, give them a context so they have some way of seeing these events without just thinking, you know, whatever somebody said to them 10 minutes ago. Yeah, I would say that that, that uh, your book was basically a historically informed civics lesson, but not at all polarizing at all, uh, whatsoever. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you as well, in terms of how we see our history, is it seems like even if you're progressive, history should be moving in one direction. And, and by that standard, America's done pretty well because you have the Constitution, which is aspirational, but then you have the slow accumulation of rights by those who were owed those rights by the Constitution, but were denied them by various systems of injustice. So you have, you know, uh, women getting the right to vote. You have Jim Crow coming down through the work of King uh, and, and the, uh, the anti-segregation movement. Of course, uh, we, we already discussed slavery. So things are moving in the right direction. People who are being denied rights unjustly can appeal to the Constitution yeah, well, to get them. Well, theoretically, but then you get to a point where, where uh, somebody uh, is demanding certain rights uh, for, for the, the, the trans groups or whatever, and you bump up against other things in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So in other words, it doesn't all just kind of slide in one direction. We've come to a place, listen, tons 
of, of black Americans are furious that uh, a lot of the things that are going on are being compared to what they went through yes. in, in civil rights and in Jim Crow and slavery. They're saying, wait, wait a second. That's nonsense. That's baloney. You cannot make that comparison. And I think that part of what is happening, what's going to make this election interesting, is I think that uh, millions of, of black Americans have woken up to the fact that the Democratic Party has, in fact, taken them for granted, has mm -hmm. not helped them, has allowed inner cities to go to hell. Uh, so if you believe Black Lives Matter, now the organization is a wicked Marxist organization, but if you actually believe that the, the urban poor need to be helped, you know that the Democrats not only never did it, but after 50 years, they've actually made things worse. And so I really do believe that part of what's going to happen is you have th this progressive uh, idea right that we're always progressing in the same direction it has bumped up against a brick wall and i think that many uh many african americans in particular are the ones to say excuse me we're, we're not we're not on this train you know to go over the cliff with you guys we we don't believe we have a biblical view of sexuality most most uh black americans are christians they're socially conservative and i think that many of them are are getting angry uh, at, the, at the Democrats for having really totally taken their vote for granted. And I think, you know, we're, it, it's an interesting inflection point. So this is this brings us to a very interesting question because it's true that African Americans are are far more socially conservative than white progressives and and that was sort of the underlying storyline that nobody dared to talk about when Pete Buttigieg flamed out in the African American community and everybody's like nobody knows why um, he doesn't appeal nobody to African Americans and I said it on on my radio program in case people don't know I have a the Eric Metaxa show on YouTube and on, on Salem radio. I said this, it's obvious. I mean, if you have, if you have friends in the black community or you're part of a black church, I mean, the church where I met my wife is, you know, has a huge minority population. You understand that, they, that these folks, there's no way uh, that they would ever give a pass to something like that. And uh, you know, if you think that Romney had a hard time because uh, evangelicals wouldn't vote for a Mormon, well, let me tell you, uh, Pete Buttigieg and others need to be aware of the fact that uh, blacks don't vote the way you tell them to anymore. I think that day uh, has has gone. I wanted to take one slight diversion before we wrap it up on 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 the future of America, just because uh, my favorite book that you've written is the Wilberforce book. Um, it's, I think, the most beautifully written biography of Wilberforce, and I actually work for a pro-life organization. We use it as mandatory reading for our internship every year. It's, And one of the things that fascinated me about the statues coming down in the UK, uh, and they haven't gone to Hull yet, they haven't touched Wilberforce yet, but was the, was the lack of recognition that the British Empire did so much to free the world of slavery, uh, like, well over, well over a hundred years ago. And then during all these discussions of, of, of vitriol and racism, they didn't bring up Hannah Moore. They didn't bring up Granville Sharp. They didn't bring up William Wilberforce. So it was like, imagine if history had no heroes and only had dark, evil, sinister people. That's the version that you get to hear about. It's sort of like, you know, um, like a history lesson brought to you by the Joker. How do you start to teach people about their history, uh, through the lens of, of the people that we can aspire to, because villains are boring. There's there's many of them, uh, more of them than there are heroes. But that doesn't mean we don't have the heroes we need. I don't I don't know if you're if you're if you really are teeing me up to talk about my my new book. But I wrote a book called Seven Men. 
I wrote a book yep. called Seven Women, and I have a new book out called Seven More Men and Seven More Women to come out next year. That's the whole point. I finally figured out that we have ceased to put forward heroes like this, usually heroes of the faith who, because of their faith, did the kind of things that almost everyone would admire. It was Wilberforce who was born again. You know, he was just a, the classic agnostic, enlightenment, French deist uh, mocker of the Methodists and of the, of the serious Christians. And when he had this experience and became a real Christian, he knew immediately that he had to, to, to engage in the civil rights issue of his day, which was this monstrous evil thing called the slave trade. And we need to know that history. We need to know how many people, because of their faith, Bonhoeffer again, because of their faith, stood up for people who looked different than they did. Bonhoeffer stood up for the Jews because he was a Christian. Uh, Wilberforce stood up for the Africans because he was a Christian, not because they were part of his group or tribe or whatever. And I, I think that teaching this kind of history, uh, we used to do that in America. Uh, because we've ceased doing it, I've written a lot of these books, and I, and mm -hmm. I, I think that if we don't know these things, it's hopeless. Uh, we, we've got to know these things. We've got to tell uh, young men and women, what does it mean to be a great person? What does it mean to be a good person? What's God's idea of a good person? You're not going to get that from the culture. Um, you're not going to get that from, from, from movies, from TV. You're, you're, you're going to have to learn these things on your own or uh, in a church context because these things used to be taught at least in schools, but we don't teach virtue in the schools. We don't teach the link between virtue and freedom. We don't teach the link uh, of how the great awakening revivals all up and down the 13 colonies leads to the possibility of 1776. That used to be in textbooks. It's no longer in textbooks. Uh, mm -hmm. It's remarkable that most people don't know who George Whitfield was. He was right. this evangelist who, who woke up uh, uh, half the people in the 13 colonies to, to something that was not just, uh, I'm going to... I'm going to make God my higher authority and I'm going to obey God so I don't need much of a governor, uh, government. I can, I can govern myself. But also to the idea that if God is everyone's authority, then I don't have to take orders from the king or whatever. They take orders from God. And we can elect people who take their orders from God. And if they don't, we can unelect them. We can get rid of them. This is a radical idea. And George Whitfield, uh, I mean, he's in my If You Can Keep It book, but he's also in the book Seven More Men. He was utterly central uh, in this. We would not have the United States of America without him any more than we would without George Washington, who's another figure in my book Seven mm -hmm. Men. It's shameful that we don't know this history. When you learn this history, you can't help but be inspired. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. When you read about these great men and women, you really can't help but want to be like them and want to tell others about them. And that's that's what keeps us going as a free culture. When we cease to do that, we go in the direction that we have been going in, and we need we need to stop. Uh, you know, yesterday. No, yesterday. Yeah, this is why when the revolution happened, Horace Walpole told Parliament that uh, cousin America has run off with a Presbyterian parson. You know something? I'm amazed that I've never heard that. And what makes it even funnier is that Horace Walpole uh, was not exactly a socially conservative. <laughs> figure. Uh, no. he, uh, he was a literary figure, you know, more along the lines of a, of a, of a Truman Capote or someone, and yet he was a wit, and he mm -hmm. saw things clearly. 
And for him to say that, uh, I really am amazed that I have never heard that. That is extraordinary. I'm going to look that up as soon as we're done. That's, that's amazing. So final question uh, to wrap up in the last couple of minutes here. Uh, it's August now. Give us your predictions for the next couple of months, although I suspect uh, you're going to give me two scenarios. But tell me, what are what are your predictions? I know you're a radio host, so I know some of them are already on the record, but how do you see this unfold? Trump is going to win. I don't have much doubt about that. What I do think is worth mentioning is that we, the people of the United States of America, are going to have to fight very hard. Uh, we have never faced anything like this, but in my book, If You Can Keep It, I refer to my favorite poem. It's Longfellow's uh, Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, the, the mm. Paul Revere's Ride. When Longfellow, who was an abolitionist, saw the Civil War coming, he knew we're facing an existential crisis as a people, and we're going to need to fight and to dig deep. And he hearkens back to the previous time the American people had an existential crisis. Uh, listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April in 75. Hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. In his day, there were some alive who remembered uh, what happened in Lexington and Concord, who remembered that battle, and they needed to remind themselves of the history. And so he writes this poem to remind them of the history because they will need that history now during, during this next existential crisis for the soul of America. It has been my contention that we are in a third existential crisis for the soul of America, and we need to look back to Paul Revere's ride and Longfellow's poem. We need to look back to Lincoln. We need to look back to the founders to gird ourselves for what is ahead. And if we do that, uh, as we did in uh, the first and the second existential crises, we will prevail, freedom will prevail, and the whole world will benefit. The people in Hong Kong, uh, some people in China, people all around the world are looking to what happens here because they know that, in Lincoln's words, we're the last best hope of Earth. They are rooting for us. And when I say us, I mean those of us who understand what it takes to keep the republic and who are willing to fight. Uh, and in many cases, we have given our lives. So I think that this is going to be a, a hard election, but I do believe Trump will win. Well, Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. It's my privilege. Thanks for asking me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with New York Times bestselling author Eric Metaxas. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do click subscribe. You can go over to lifesightnews.com. Check out the podcast button for past episodes. We also have life and family commentary on all relevant issues that you can find there at lifesightnews.com. Once again, thank you for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week. 